Father, it is an amazing truth to be able to sing that Jesus is our King. He's not merely our King, our Lord, but as was promised to you in Psalm 2, surely I will give the nations as your inheritance. Colossians tells us that you have reconciled the all things, the whole world, the whole universe to yourself through Christ Jesus. You are the King of all things. You are our King in that we are, by your grace and by your sovereign purposes, transferred from the domain of darkness into your kingdom to love you and to serve you and to delight in you. You are our King as the one we honor and the one we want to honor and the one we want to obey and serve with our lives. Thank you that you have shown us such marvelous grace. And even as we look at John chapter 4 and this portion of scripture that you by your eternal purpose and by the Holy Spirit have recorded to us, recorded for us. Teach us, our Lord, from this encounter that you had with the Samaritan woman. And teach us, particularly as we begin this new year, our first corporate gathering for this new year to plan and purpose and to think and intend this next year to reflect some of the glorious truths that are laid out for us here in Scripture. We can do this only by your power and only by your work in us, and so that is what we pray together and ask you to energize and to do. And it's in your most precious name, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, again, open up your Bibles to John 4. You should already uh, be there. As we all know, this is uh, the beginning of a new year. This is uh, the time to make, as we know, New Year's resolutions and New Year's goals. If you may be seen in your advertisements, of course, you may get exercise equipment advertisements and the gym, the 24-hour fitness. This is where they make their money, is uh, this time of the year. And, and, you know, in some ways, that's a cliche kind of uh, easy, uh, I don't know, punchline is people who want to lose weight or people who want to make some kind of goals that will quickly fade away, as we all know, very often. Uh, weeks or maybe even a bit last long enough, a month or two into the new year. But even though many of those resolutions never come to full light and never come to f- full fruition, it is a, a good time at the beginning of the year to stop and to reflect and to consider and to think about what lies ahead of us, to reflect on the past and to think about those areas where we can offer thanks to God for His many mercies and the ways that we see have seen Him work in our life, to do self-examination and to look at those areas in the past where we see failure and see patterns of sin and those kind of things that we want to uh, repent of and also just those things we want to do better in. It's also a time for us, rightly, to look forward and to think of those things we want to seek from the Lord, those things that we want to be principles and truths and realities to govern our lives in this next year to come. And that's what I want to consider just this morning out of John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. This isn't a a detailed exegesis. Obviously, we would never normally take 26 verses, but I am determined that we will get through all of them. Because our intention is merely to go through the passage and consider some principles, consider some truths drawn out of this encounter of Jesus with the Samaritan woman that should help us think through and prepare this, for this new year. To think about things that we want to seek from the Lord. To think about those things that should be directing our desires and directing our goals and directing our resolutions. Is this not on? It's on. I think it's on. Yeah, I'm on. Is it not on back there? All right. We'll use this. Is this better? Whoa, wow. I feel like I just had a Moses experience or something. That works great. means I have to be tied to this spot. That's okay. Well, hopefully you heard everything uh, up to here. If not, just ask your neighbor after the service, and uh, they'll tell you everything that was so crucial and powerful uh, in these last few minutes. But otherwise, what I said is that we're coming into John chapter 4, and we're not, this isn't a detailed exegesis. This is mining this interaction that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman to draw out some principles, five to be exact, to help us think through this new year and to think through how we make our plans and our goals and the priorities that we set out for ourselves.
Uh, we read the passage already during our scripture reading, so we'll just uh, forgo that this time and read it in sections and draw out these principles. Look again at verses 1 through 6 of John chapter 4. John, the gospel writer, is here introducing in these first few verses the episode that will follow with the Samaritan woman. And this is following, as you know, this great encounter with Nicodemus, that religious leader, and then John's last testimony to the glory of Christ in his person and in his work as Messiah. And then he he comes into these words, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Baptism was, of course, a a major part of the life or the central part of the ministry of John the Baptist, but it's here noted to be a part of the ministry of Jesus as well. But notice what a secondary nature it takes on. Jesus himself not baptizing, his disciples were those who were coming in to identify themselves with this Messiah that John announced and to align themselves with him. But John is here, I just note, preparing for us for the journey that Jesus was to take in this next portion of his gospel. And he says then in verse 4, And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Look at verse 4. I want to, several things that could be highlighted. I want to highlight just one point in verse 4. It says that he had to pass through Samaria. And this is somewhat of a striking statement as you read this. Uh, He uses a term here that could be translated as it was necessary, and that's the idea, the different ways that it's used. It has at the heart of it the idea of something that must take place, something that is necessary, something that has to happen. Why was it necessary for him to pass through Samaria? Let me mention the first part here is remember that God is seeking you. Sorry, forgot to mention that. God is seeking you. God is seeking you. And that is inherent here in verse 4. And again, the question is, why did he have to pass through Samaria? Now, one could argue that he had to pass through Samaria because it was the most direct route from where he was to get to Jerusalem. And that is certainly true. The other route that would have commonly been taken was much, much longer. It was much, much more difficult. One described it as being hot and difficult and mostly avoided. And so it was occasionally taken uh, this route around Samaria, but most commonly the Jews traveled through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, some of you are familiar with the name of Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian from around this time in the first century, who said this, It was the custom of Galileans, here Jews, they lived in Galilee, when they came to the holy city at the festivals to take their journeys through the country of the Samaritans. So that was a common journey for Jews generally in the general populace to travel through the land of Samaria to get to Jerusalem. Uh, It was only the most fastidious Jewish adherents, namely the Pharisees and those who followed their strict codes, who would take that longer route around. They didn't want to pass through the land of the Samaritans. The Samaritans were to them, as some of you are familiar with, hated. They were despised. They were considered half-breeds. They were considered apostates of true Judaism. This goes back way into the history of Israel. Just... uh, To make note of that, way back in around the 8th century B.C., 722, well, actually before that, after Solomon, the kingdom split, some of you know, into two kingdoms. There were the ten northern tribes, the southern tribe of Judah. They, these northern tribes, having broken off from the worship of Jerusalem, established a new place of worship in Samaria. Later in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came down in God's judgment, took them all away into captivity, planted new people in the land, and what happened is they brought also their gods and the people of the Jews that were left and remarried. And so you kind of had this half 
breed of Jews and this really syncretic pagan and influenced kind of worship that took place at Samaria. So that causes deep friction and hatred between those Jews of Jews towards the Samaritans. And so that was why some of the fastidious Jews and some of the Pharisees and those more strict in their approach to religion, the Jewish religion, would actually take that longer journey around just so they could avoid going through Samaria. But by and large, Jews did travel through that land. It was not uncommon. Most people did simply because it was a much simpler route. But Jesus wasn't too concerned with some of these scruples of those who would foster in their hearts such deep animosity toward the Samaritans. Jesus was here as a Messiah for all men. Jesus had just said to Nicodemus in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved Samaritans as well as the Jews. Though he was sent first to the Jews, he loved all of his image bearers. This is a point Actually, John is careful to make at many places in his gospel that he came to gather in those who were scattered abroad, those who were his sheep, who were in all of the nations, not only the nation of Jews. So he repeatedly disregarded these sort of false distinctions and barriers that some of those in the Jewish nation made. But it still doesn't answer the question of why does John specifically mention here that he had to pass through Samaria. It was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. Certainly it was related to geography, but that's not likely the only reason that he mentions that. If it were merely a matter of geography, John could very easily have said, as it's said in many places, other places, that simply that Jesus passed through Samaria, or to say, as Jesus passed through Samaria. But he doesn't. He's very specific to say that his passing through Samaria, through Samaria to, Jerusalem, uh, to Galilee was very specific. It was necessary. And just as an interesting side note, this term that John uses here is a term is nowhere else used in reference to Jesus' travel arrangements, but is used many times in reference to Jesus' mission and people's response to him. I'm not going to belabor this, but let me just give you a few examples. He used this word the first time back in John chapter 3, 7, and he told Nicodemus, Do not be amazed. I said to you, you must be born again. The experience of new life is an essential reality necessary to be a part of the kingdom of God. He said later in John chapter 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, that is uh, a part of his messiahship and his mission that cannot be foregone. He must do it. And that's the way the word is used. And so it's interesting that he uses it here to say he must pass through Samaria. The fact that he had to do this by not eliminating the matter of geography is most likely meant to point us to the reality of Jesus being directed by the Father specifically to meet the Samaritan woman. John is preparing us for this meeting of Jesus and this woman. And in preparing us, he makes note that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It's the most common and unexpected circumstances, this conversation that he would have, which will come out later. But it was necessary that he be here. You could say it was necessary because it was a divine appointment. It was a divine appointment. He was there specifically to have a conversation with this woman. And that's what John is preparing us for here. And I would just make a couple of observations uh, about that. First is this. And remember the goal here and the point is to say as we think about this new year, as we think about how to make our plans, as we think about how we intend to engage with God in this new year. And along those lines is simply this, that God is actively pursuing us. Lay hold of that as you think about God's, your experience with the grace of God in your past, as you anticipate what you will experience of God and how you'll know Him in the future. Remember that God is actively pursuing His own. Note this woman was not looking for Jesus, but Jesus was most certainly looking for her. 
There was no indication that she was seeking God even, but the reality is that God was seeking her. This is a marvelous truth. God is a seeking God. He is a seeking God. If we were all left to ourselves, none of us would seek Him. Right? We're familiar with Paul's words in Romans. No one seeks for God. That is not to say no one is religious. That is not to say no one doesn't have, or no one has some kind of awareness of the deity or however that's defined. It is no one seeks for God as he is. No one. If anyone is to know God, it is because God was already seeking them. It's because God was already seeking them. Listen to how Paul describes that. Just listen. I'm going to mention this before I get to the main principle. But in John or Galatians 4, he says there, he says to these uh, believers, he says, Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. He said, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, and he makes careful to say, or rather, to be known by God. In other words, if you know him, it's because God has already determined to know you. He is a seeking God. If you are a Christian, it is because God sought you, not because you sought him. And so for the true believer, if you're here this morning and you know him, consider this as you look forward to the new year and the things that you set out to accomplish and the goals that you have set. Remember that in relation to this, God's electing love set on you. Peter reminds us then that we should be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. In other words, as you anticipate this new year, reflect on the fact that this is a year that God has given to you as a Christian and as a son because before the foundation of the world, he sought you out and drew you into relationship with himself. That means then that God's priorities should be our priorities this next year. That means then that the kingdom in which he has called us into should be at the highest point of our priorities and our goals and our plans. That a fruit of his electing love to us, his seeking us when we were not seeking him, is to order our lives under those things that reflect his glory and his lordship. If you take these words of Peter about being more diligent than to make certain about his calling and choosing of you, he prefaced that just before by saying, determined to set as a priority to grow in your knowledge of him. As you think about this new year, set your goals and your priorities and your plans to know this God who has called you into intimate union with himself. Peter put it this way, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own excellence and glory. It means that God called you to be into fellowship with himself. And we then should make as the plan and the purpose and the order of our lives to know him, to know him. Think about how you're going to use this year in terms of your time. Think about how you're going to direct this year in your lives in terms of your use of or non-use of entertainment. Think about how you might learn to live under his lordship in relationship to your pursuits and your relationships in all points of your life. A second way to apply this for a believer is this. To make and determine to have for this coming year a grateful heart. A grateful heart. Too often Christians are ungrateful people. I am, you are, we groan, we complain, we whine, we wallow too often in self-pity and miss this glorious reality that God has sought us, God has called us, God has brought us into his eternal kingdom in Christ Jesus. The fruit of our lives gathering or grasping this truth should be that gratitude, gratitude. Hebrews 13.5 says, Through him then, Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Gratitude is a mark of grace, and it's gratitude that flows directly from an understanding of the gospel. 
directly from an understanding that before the foundation of the world, God chose you in His Son to be a son and to participate in His kingdom. And if that's what flavors our understanding of reality in our own lives, then it should produce in us gratitude. Gratitude. God has saved you from a helpless condition of sin. God has saved you as a believer from eternal condemnation, from eternal judgment, from hell. He's rescued you. He's spared you. He's saved you. And He's brought you into eternal fellowship with Himself. This gratitude for the grace of God then should be a goal of our lives. It should be a goal of our lives. And it should then be within, thirdly, then to seek to grow in our love for Him. Seek to grow in our love for Him. As you think about this new year, as you think about how you might serve Him and know Him and grow in gratitude for Him, ask Him to give you such an understanding of the kingdom, such an understanding of what He has saved you from, that we could say with sincerity with Paul in Philippians 3, that I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As you think about your priorities of having been found and sought by God, of having by sovereign election been called into, into eternal fellowship with His Son, think about how that fellowship and how that upward and end of our call in Christ Jesus might set our goals and priorities. For the unbeliever, I just make this comment. If you're here and you don't know Christ, uh, the only thing that keeps you from a knowledge of Christ is you. Jesus is calling to you even now through His Word. God is a seeking God. He is the God who said through the mouth of Isaiah, Turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. If you are an unbeliever and you're weary of your sin or you're fearful of your condition of death or you're an unbeliever and you have no hope in this life, if that is the internal reality that you experience, then God offers you to have hope in Him. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. If you feel the slightest twinge of desire to know Him, to be changed from unbelieving to believing, to be out from under the tyranny of sin in your life, to have rest from your hopelessness and meaninglessness, then the lesson you can learn from this is that God is seeking you. God is seeking you and He is available to all who cry out to Him. And I know that to some of you that applies directly. Another just broad point here as you think about this new year and the past year and this new year, is recognize His providence in all things. Yes, Jesus was here by divine appointment, but He was also doing what was habitually present in His life or common in His life, and that was to submit everything to the divine leading and direction of the Father. To recognize God's providence in every situation and to obey Him in it. He was always filled with the Spirit, He always walked by the Spirit, and He was always sensitive to the Father's leading because He was perfectly submitted to His will. He'd say later in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative, as I hear I judge. He says later, I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And I just again would make this simple observation. As we think about this next year, let's commit to learn to live more fully and consciously under the sovereign hand of God. To see His hand of sanctifying grace in our trials and hardships. To see His mercies in the countless ways He cares for you in the details of life that go so often just assumed or unnoticed in our hearts. To see and to follow through and recognize His providences that are in continual promptings towards righteous behavior and doing His will. Let's be like Jesus and develop a habit of obedience and determine to seek that from God. To be able to say that great statement that Calvin said, I offer my heart to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Let's think about that in this new year. That that's the attitude we want to develop. And we could notice, just as a side note here as well, that's not so much a side note, but kind of the point. 
but in terms of observation, is that notice that Jesus, in being sensitive to God's providence and following God's providence and God the Father's leading in every way, was singularly minded to reveal himself and to be concerned about the spiritual condition of others. Singularly minded to be sensitive to do the Father's will in revealing the wonder of his salvation. This was a providential meeting that he was going to have with this woman, and he was prepared for it because he was always doing and thinking about the will of his Father. And so we can seek from God in this coming year to develop the same mindset towards God's providence to realize that everybody he brings into our path is an opportunity, possibly, to be a witness to Christ. We have to be thinking spiritually, however, and not merely earthly-minded. It doesn't mean that every single person, you know, you stop at a stoplight and you roll down your window to the car next to you and go, this, God put them there, you know, and you toss over a gospel tract or something. It's not saying that. But it's saying being sensitive to those situations and those opportunities that God does bring into our lives. And that we're thinking spiritually. We're, we're living under His hand. We're living under His providence and seeing in everything God's working and looking for ways that we might be a witness to Him. So now secondly, and I'll go a little quicker through these others. Know then, as we think about our plans for this coming year, that Christ is so much better than this world. Look at verse 7 through 14. So there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? We've already noted that. Jesus answered and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water I will give will... I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This is a marvelous offer that Jesus was giving to this woman that he lays out before us. But he has to direct her mind from this present world up to greater realities and to greater truths. If there's one thing the devil, if there's one thing this worldly system under his influence, if there's one thing our own sinful flesh fights for, it is to be earthly focused. To have our eyes only on what is seen, not on what is unseen. And this is really at the heart of unbelief. Christ has come to offer us something amazing, something beyond belief in many ways, something that is wonderful. He came to offer us God to extend mercy and forgiveness and grace to us, the guilty, the vile, the polluted. There's nothing more precious than to know God. We bear His image. We were created as His image bearers to participate with Him in life, His mission, His joy, His fellowship. It's the very essence of who we are as humanity. God created us to live in perfect harmony with Himself and to rule with Him in creation, His vice regents, if you were. This is the very heart of creation itself, the entire universe. The very culmination of all things is the fulfillment of this, to rule and to reign with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth in perfect fellowship with God. That's why we're here. We weren't. That's why we we're redeemed. And these are the very truths that our sin so often blinds us to and deceives us and makes us think that this world without God, or without God at least as the supreme end of all things and the supreme satisfaction of our heart, is the most real. And that's at the heart of unbelief. When this world is more real to us than God Himself. And God is calling this woman then not to be unbelieving, but to be believing. He calls us to do the same. Let me give at least a couple of general thoughts here. As you think about your life, as you think about this new year, do not be distracted or derailed by unbelief, by making your focus completely this world. This woman 
was set on the things of this world and Jesus had to keep prompting her to think of something deeper, something greater, something more real. Something she didn't even, wasn't even thinking of. She's not even seeking again this spiritual encounter. She's not thinking with a spiritual mindset at all. She's simply going through life looking at things as the way they are. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Sir, give me water so that I will not be thirsty and nor come all the way here to draw water again. What is the great thing you might be offering? That somehow I could have an endless support, support, a supply of water and be, have ease in life, a little bit more ease in life and not have to come all the way down here to the well? Whatever her religious identity, she had a heart fully in this world and living for it. Her mind was tethered to the earthly. She was essentially living in unbelief. Not a general religious belief, she had that, but in personal unbelief that feels no weight or the bearing of the reality of God on her soul and on her life. Are you like the woman? Am I like the woman? That everything we turn into... Or the way we approach this world is to be earth-centered and not heavenly-centered. She had no burden of her sin. She had no sense of eternity on her soul that would cause her to seek God above all else. Again, she was just going through life. Who of you are just going through life? No real direction, responding to whatever comes your way. Just waking up one morning and going to sleep that night with no real direction in your life. No real sense of what God is doing in terms of His kingdom and how He's shaping you and molding you to Christ or drawing you to Him. And this serves as a couple of dangers to us, a warnings. And again, it is by one being derailed in such a way that we find this world as the pinnacle of reality. Finding our identity, our purpose, our meaning in this world, living by, again, only what our eyes can see and our hands can touch. To be distracted by this world, putting the earthly above the eternal, making earthly things the priority of your life. As you think of whatever goals or whatever plans you had last year and this coming year, think about what consumed most of your time. What consumed most of your emotional energy? What consumed most of your intellectual energy in terms of your thinking and your planning and the things that consumed your mind? Consider what you pursued this last year, this past year, and what you will this next year in terms of where you find your pleasure. Where you find your pleasure. What does your life, and of course I'm applying all these things already to myself with conviction, where do you find your pleasure? What does your life reveal as what you believe to be the most satisfying reality for your soul? The remedy to this, if it's earthly minded, is simple. It's faith. It's believing that Christ is who he said he is. And Christ is pointing her to this next principle for us to consider is that to believe that Christ is better than everything else. She had only an earthly mindset, but Jesus was offering something greater. He says, look, you would have asked me and I would have given you something so much more than this water. I would have given you living water. It's kind of like Jesus in his conversation with the Jews in John 6. They said, give us this bread. He said, you ate of the loaves and you were filled. You want from me merely this earthly ease. You just want earthly comforts, earthly provisions. You're missing that something so much greater is before you. Who? Me. I'm the bread. I'm the true satisfaction of your soul. Come to me and you will never hunger. Believe in me and you will never thirst. And so he tells this woman, whoever drinks of the water that I'll give will never thirst, but the water I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You're worried about this world and I'm offering you life. I'm offering you life like you've never imagined before. What is the water here? What is it? It's best understood here as a reference to every spiritual grace of eternal life that consists in joyful fellowship and spiritual satisfaction in Christ. Every blessing that God of life that God has given to those who believe in His Son. 
every blessing that those who are in His Son have through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but He does later in verse chapter 7. Verse, uh, excuse me, 38. He says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. In other words, this experience of those ever flowing waters within the soul and within the life of men will flow out of their life into the world. It will be evident in them. And he says in verse 39, But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is a reality he's saying that will come to you through me that will be the fulfillment of all of God's goodness and promises of blessing that he has for you. That he has for you. Basically, this is a promise, essentially, of the Holy Spirit ministry within her through Christ. He's extending this life, this blessing, this present and eternal satisfaction in to this woman. He's extending it to you and to me as sinners. This is the climactic revelation of what He has always held out to men. Let's listen to one other thing. He says in Isaiah 55, you can just write this down. He says this, using some of the same imagery, 55 in Isaiah 1-3, he says this, Ho, everyone who thirsts, that is spiritual thirst, that has spiritual hungers, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come with buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. That's essentially what he's offering this woman. is saying, now I'm offering to you this abundant and living and ever-flowing and ever-present reality of life. So the question is, do you believe this? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ is more satisfying than everything else? If so, how will this affect your plans for this next year? And what is more real to you, this world or God's promises in Christ? When you think about what occupies your mind in the silence of your own moments, when you go to bed and when you wake up and throughout the day... Is it this reality that everything that is best for our soul is, for, is given to us in Christ? So what's more desirable to you, this world, relationships, worldly pleasure, worldly success, or to know and be useful for Christ in this world? Which is easier, an hour of Netflix or an hour of prayer and studying His Word? Kids, you especially need this. We have these discussions often in our home. We're not perfect in this yet. Which is more desirable to you? Would it be so strange for somebody to actually find us without our phone and reading our Bible? Would that be weird? As though the kind of priorities that we set for our life, do we really believe what Jesus offers to her and to us, that he is a well of water springing up to eternal life, that he is the satisfaction of our souls? Do we really believe that? And if we do, how will that be shown in the decisions that we make, the things that we pursue, the ways that we manage our time? So those are some questions to ask. No thirdly here, we have to move. We'll know this when we're willing to deal with our own sin. When we're willing to deal with our own sin, and not until then. He even reflected this, God did through Isaiah, back in Isaiah. In chapter 55, again, the following verse said this, I made, Behold, I've made him a witness to the people, a leader, a commander of the nations. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Let, and then he says in verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. 
So Jesus offers this to this woman, but it's not apart from her having to deal with sin in her life. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, and I will not be thirsty. You'll come all the way down here to draw. And he said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You said correctly, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. In other words, before you can know the reality of this gift, you have sin in your life that you need to deal with. You have here, in her case, this issue of immorality. You're living with someone who is not your husband. You're an adulteress. You have you are outside of the will of God. You are living in disobedience to Him, and you need to come to terms with this first. You can know these promises, but you have to be deal you have to deal with sin. At the end of the day, we will not know the reality of what Jesus offers to us here. We will not experience the fullness of God's promise and the reality of his life until we are actually willing to address our sin. Not superficially, but at its roots. And I would note this, that dealing with sin is not simply a matter of behavior modification. Of not doing one thing and doing another. That is a necessary part of repentance. That's a necessary fruit. That's an essential part of the process. But that is not how we put sin to death. It's not. Dealing with sin at the root is this. Is addressing our love for sin. It's our heart. It's addressing our love for sin. Our desire for sin. We deal with sin at its root when we desire righteousness as that when righteousness exceeds our desire for sinful pleasure. That's when we really are sanctified. It's possible so much, even as you might think of how to apply this in this coming year, to focus so much on changed behavior and externals. Even in obedience to Christ's command, you know, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. It's possible, though, to focus so much on that, on what we do on the outside, that we can get rid of sinful things in our life and still harbor and keep and foster and even nourish a love for sin in our hearts. It's possible to have sin, a love for sin in our hearts that still dulls our affections for God and for Christ. Jesus warned the Pharisees of this. They had much religion. They were very fastidious. He says, you tithe milk, uh, cumin, dill, and so forth. He says, but in your heart, you are full of uncleanness. They had a very disciplined religious life everywhere but their heart. Everywhere but in their thinking. They said, I have not committed adultery. He says, yeah, but you're full of lust. You're looking around at women all the time and you're lusting for them in a way that's breaking that commandment. You're dishonoring God. They were very careful not to go to the adulterous house while their hearts reveled in adultery all of the time. When we think about dealing with sin, we must deal with sin at our motives, the level of our motives and our desires. It will never be perfect, but that's where we must always keep our attention. Truly dealing with sin is manifest in this attitude. It's Romans 12. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil. It is to grow in our understanding of Christ's majesty and God's glory and the wonder of grace so much that sin, while the battle was, was still going to be there inside and with temptation, but that you grow in your understanding of Christ and grace and glory so much that sin becomes abhorrent and distasteful to you internally. That's when we know that we're really starting to grow in grace. That's what God wants from us. Listen to these words. And it's really, if I could... I don't have the reference written down. He does say it later here in Jeremiah. It's stupid to not pursue these things. It's stupid, particularly us who are God's people. Listen to what he says through Jeremiah. He says in verse 11, chapter 2, Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit? He says, Be appalled, O heavens. In other words, all of the angelic realm, all of the whole heavens should look at this and be appalled and be amazed. 
He says, and shudder and be very desolate, declares the Lord. In verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, that's the first one, the fountain of living waters. And the second is this, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says, this is appalling. This is amazing. Here you are, my covenant people, the people of my blessing, the people of my promise. I'm giving myself to you. I've, I've called you out of Egypt. I've called you into fellowship. I've given you my word. I've given you my promises. I've given you my covenant. I've given you my spirit, my presence in the temple. I've given you the priesthood. I've given you a way to approach me. And I would give you so much more when you walk in my ways. I'll bless you beyond what you know. And you've looked at all of those things that I've given to you and promised to you and you said no I don't want that I want this I want these empty gods I want sex I want to live according to my own way I want to, I want to worship these idols that allow me to indulge my lust in every way I've actually looked at all of these covenant promises. He says, you've looked at them and you said, no, this is better. This is better than God. This is better than Him. This is better than walking in obedience. And of course, that brings judgment. He says, have you not done this to yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when He led you in the way? You're going to know the fruit of it. He says later, your own wickedness will correct you. Your apostasies will approve you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Don't do that. Don't do that. God offers us to himself and he says, I am a fountain of living waters. I am a source of joy and pleasure that your soul was created to know and to be satisfied in. Will you make that the priority of your life? So I want to ask you this. So I ask myself, what loves are in your heart that dull your love for Christ? That make Christ uninteresting? That make you almost anxious or annoyed if you had to give it up in order to spend time with Christ? What kind of things are in your heart that way? What secret and cherished sins do you nourish and coddle in your hearts and mind that keep you from truly worshiping and serving Christ and longing for Him? Ask God the Spirit to help you identify me. Say, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. To ask Him to stoke our affections for Him, to love, righteousness. God gives us treasures of blessing. He offers Himself. And He pleads with us, essentially, to know all of His grace and His pleasures. Fourthly, so we must be willing to deal with sin. And we must believe that Christ... And righteousness is better than everything else. Fourth, do not be misled by merely external worship. We touched on this, but listen to what he says. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. In terms of religious orthodoxy and doctrine, the Jews were correct in their understanding of... God's covenant place of worship being in Jerusalem. The Jews were the nation that God chose and through whom the Messiah would come. The Samaritans were, and that's, they were apostate. They were outside of the true religious word of Israelite religion. They were not believing in the fullness of God's revelation. However, both the Jews and the Samaritans fell into a common error. While they, in reality, they were both equally wrong in this way. In reality, they were both equally wrong, even though Jesus does make a distinction that the Jews are correct and you're not correct in terms of Messiah and place of worship and so forth. They were equally wrong, Jew and Samaritan, and far from God, inasmuch as they trusted and focused on the externals of religion and not the heart of God, who gave them 
his word to lead the hearts of men upward to him. In other words, both of them had fallen into the trap of mere formalism. A form of religion, but not knowing its power. Not knowing its power. God hates mere formalism. The kind of religion that performs outwardly, but is inwardly devoid of a true love for God, a true love for righteousness, and a hatred of sin. We won't turn to these. I'll just mention them. Isaiah 1, he tells them, bring your worthless offerings to me no more. He says, I hate your new moon feast. I hate them. You bring this stuff to me. Yeah, I commanded it, but you're doing it in the wrong way. He says, your heart that doesn't love me. He says, I hate it. Get them out of my face. I'm going to judge you. They're disgusting to me, he said to the nation, because you really are doing all of this stuff, but you love sin. And you're really going after sin in your heart. And you're not honoring me. Jesus warned the Jews, also reflecting out of uh, Isaiah. He says, you know, in vain do you honor me with your lips. In vain do you do those things because your heart, in Matthew 15, is far from me. Far from me. God is after our heart and our affections. This is the heart of the law, that you love the Lord God, your whole soul, soul, mind, and strength. If we get that right, everything else is superfluous. It's unnecessary. I don't need the Ten Commandments. I don't need all of the other stuff. Why? Because if you love God, you're not going to do those things. You're not going to steal and commit murder and blaspheme His name. You're not going to be covetous. You're not going to do those things because you love God. That's why Paul says several times or a couple times in the New Testament that the, that is the fulfillment of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. It flows out of the love for God. So as we think about spiritual goals in this coming year, it may be tempting to think of things like this. And this is where I want to go. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to spend more time in prayer. I'll be more active in serving others. I'll seek to be more involved in ministry at the church. Now, all of those things are good and necessary, but they're fruits. They're not the root of what God is calling for here. And if they're not done with this attitude that Christ is calling for here, then they're only going to lead to frustration, fatigue, or self-righteousness if it's not driven by worship. The goal should be this, as you think about God seeking true worshipers. The goal should be this. How will I this year set my life and direct my life and my priorities to know Him better? To love Him more? To love Christ better? Obey Him more fully? To serve Him more faithfully? It's going to involve Bible reading, but we're scouring the Bible to see His character, to see His heart, to know Him, to seeking Him. Prayer is going to be a part of that, but we're seeking from Him to grow us in worship. And to show us where we're failing. He wants a heart that is alive to him. He says, worship God in spirit and in truth. What does he mean by that? Well, in a nutshell. The spirit here is that worship which takes place in the inner man. In his spirit. God is spirit. And what he wants from us is the reality of our spirit. Our inner life. And it's not something that we just give to Him. Again, this is the work of the Holy Spirit as well, who regenerates our heart, who gives us life, who stirs up in us these desires. And so we're asking the Spirit of God as well to make us true worshipers, to root out sin wherever it is in our heart, to direct our hearts to God. And then asking Him, what do you want me to do in terms of ministry and service and so forth? And lastly here, just for time's sake, and I'll mention it briefly, is that we must delight as we set our plans. So our goal is to say, Lord, make me a better worshiper in this coming year. And, and lastly, to delight in his nearness and his person. Look at what he says. He, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to you, her I who speak to you am he. This is amazing. He uses the Greek phrase here, some of you are familiar with, ego, me, I am. In several places in John particularly, that is a theological statement of deity. That's not likely how he means it here. It could be hints of that, and in the big picture of his life, it certainly is included there. But he's saying here, he says, I am the Messiah whom you are hoping for. Yes, this Messiah is God. Yes, that would come out in its fullness. But he's saying, I am the one you are hoping for. I am the very essence of all of your religious anticipation and desires. I'm everything that scripture is pointed to. 
And he says, I'm here sitting with you. I'm the one talking with you. Now this is amazing. In Deuteronomy 4.7, one of the amazing things, wonderful realities that set Israel apart from all of the nations is he says this in Deuteronomy 4.7, What nation has a God so near to it as you? What nation has a God who is holy, who is supreme in glory and majesty, who hates sin, and yet dwells personally and present among, is present among his people? Who? Who? And as we talked about before, there was such a strong sense of the transcendence of God. It made the eminence of God, the nearness of God, all the more amazing. And yet none anticipated the full reality that God himself would tabernacle and dwell among his people in human flesh and come to them not merely as some Shekinah glory in the temple, but come to them in a person, in a man. And Jesus is saying, this God is here with you personally. This is nothing can can grasp this fully. I'm not here in the temple. I'm not here through a prophet. I'm here speaking to you with real lips and real flesh and blood. And here's the amazing thing for us. Is there's a way that Christ is with us more intimately even than what he's saying to this woman. You can imagine the amazement. If you try to try to relive that circumstance, put yourself in the woman's place and how overwhelmed this must be. How incredible this must have been to her. And yet then consider this. That Jesus promised to his disciples, and by extension to all of his people, I will not leave you as orphans. If I go, I will come back to you. Yes, that includes his resurrection, but he's talking about more than his resurrection there. It can't be limited to his resurrection because he says, and I will be in you and you will be in me. In other words, there's a reality of Christ's presence among his people that would come after the sending of the Holy Spirit where he would draw us by virtue of all that the new covenant anticipated and is into intimate fellowship with himself. And so he would say later this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments, my word, or keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode in him. Christ is near. He's present. He's in us. That's the mystery of the gospel, Colossians 2. Christ in you. You, us as the church, as the people of God, as individuals who make up the people of God. Christ is in us. There's a song, a part of a song that I, I think of often. I love it. You'll, you'll know what it's from. It's Lord, I Need You. It's a contemporary version. He says, Holiness is Christ in me. Holiness is Christ in me. So, this is at the very heart of eternal life, that we might know Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. So the greatest goal that we could have for ourselves this year is to know Christ and to grow in our knowledge of Him, to seek Him with a whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, to grow in our intimacy, fellowship, and glad obedience, to seek to grasp the wonderful reality of the new covenant that Christ is personally present in His people, sanctifying us, loving us, calling us into fellowship, being patient with us, caring for us, providing for us, pointing us always to that which is the greatest of our, for our souls, which is to know Him and to live in obedience to Him and to hope for His return and make that the governing reality of our whole lives and certainly the year to come, but every year that follows as well. We want to love this world and ourselves less and Him and others more. So consider these things as you look forward to this new year, as you plan, as you prepare. And may God give us who know him the grace to follow through on these commitments. And we'll fail. You'll fail. I'll fail. But that's the wonder of grace. It always keeps us dependent on Christ, our perfect Savior who never fails us. And if you don't know Christ, if you don't know him, then the plea is... 
don't yet let another year pass. If God would even be so merciful to let you live another year, don't let it pass without seeking Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Jesus, thank You for coming and giving us life. As we looked at before, Paul said that the essence of understanding the Gospel is that You have awakened our hearts to see the light of the knowledge of Your glory in the face of Christ. And that's what enabled Paul ultimately to say that he looks not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal, and those are the things that matter. Forgive us for being so earthly-minded, for finding earthly pleasures and earthly pursuits as the highest priority, as if that were our end. Give us faith to see that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of our pleasures, far deeper than anything this world could offer, are in Christ. And it's only in grasping that that we can fully even enjoy the pleasures of this world. And know them as they were intended to point us back up to you. Forgive us. And thank you for your patience with us and prompt us to keep pursuing you, to keep seeking you, to keep fighting sin, to keep longing for righteousness and holiness. And for any who are here who don't know you, be gracious to them, we pray, and cause them to see your glory and to abandon all to have you. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.